If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. tuning in, and welcome to the August 23rd, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities, I'm Frances O'Brien in Los Angeles. Welcome. On this outing, we do a quick take on Christopher Isherwood and share a look back at two of our interviews with writer-actor Craig Chester. But first, we look at a film doing damage on the stream. And with The Great White Way starting to reopen, what better movie to screen online than 1997's Broadway Damage? I forget about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday after Sunday in New York. Cynics beware! Broadway Damage is a valentine to New York City and those who still believe in true love and happy endings. In this very romantic comedy, two NYU grads move into their first Greenwich Village walk-up and prepare to take on the world. Mark, played by the very handsome Michael Sean Lewis, dreams of an acting career. Much, much better, Mark. Great. You're studying with Norma, right? No. Do you think I had to take a speech class? Couldn't hurt. Do you think I read too soft? Too soft? Yeah, I went to see this agent and he said I might read too soft or something. Too so too light? He said you read too light? Yeah, light, that's it. I, I'd never want to say that. Because I've been trying to speak louder, you know, project my voice more. I thought I was doing better at that. Mark, that's not what reading light means. Meanwhile, his shopaholic roommate Cynthia, played by Mara Hobble, is determined to conquer fashion publishing if only Tina Brown would return her calls. Do you think Ralph would ever let a season go without doing that great white shirt? Do you think Donna would ever let a fall come and go without doing that little black dress? I don't think so. Mark's best friend is Robert, a slightly nerdy aspiring songwriter who dreams of writing the next Into the Woods and settling down there with Mr. Wright. So whatever happened to tap dance face? Mark, I cannot bring myself to date someone who wears pink leg warmers. I don't care how nice his teeth are. What about that waiter? Which waiter? The Italian one. Tiramisu? He doesn't even know I'm alive. There's always the grand gesture. The grand gesture? What's that? You know, it's like when you lay your heart on the line and you let yourself do something outrageously romantic that more than likely you're going to feel like a fool because you did, but you're going to do it anyway because you never know. You know what I mean? That's the grand gesture. The problem is that Robert's already found Mr. Wright, and it's his best friend, Mark. But before Robert gets up the nerve for the romantic grand gesture, Mark falls for a handsome pop star wannabe named David, played with panache by Hugh Panaro. So will our heroes find happiness with each other? 
You'll have to see the movie to find out, but duh. Recently, we spoke with the writer-director of Broadway Damage, Victor Mignate. Interestingly enough, I got the idea for this film at the Outfest two or I guess it was three years ago now. I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen in 17 years who lived, I used to know in New York. I spent a lot of time with one summer. He's now a big TV producer. And uh, that summer we had, um, he lost the keys to his apartment. And we climbed the fire escape of his building and broke into his building because he didn't have his keys. Now, I was all of 19 years old, and I thought climbing the fire escape of a building in Greenwich Village was just the coolest thing in the world, to break into an apartment. And from that memory of that summer, the entire film happened. More than anything, I felt like I really wanted to make something that was like life-affirming and positive and optimistic. Uh, because of the work I was doing in, in advertising, so much of what I was called on to do was really all about being like as hip and cool and edgy as possible. Like if I heard that word edgy one more time, I thought I was going to like lose my mind. Everybody wanted everything like edgy and like... I'm not even sure what that means, but like it was getting exhausting trying to like be hip all the time. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm not all that hip, you know, and, and everybody out there isn't all that hip or interested in all that hip. And hip to me is kind of like boring because if you're spending your time worrying about being cool, you're missing life as far as I'm concerned. And I thought it would be fun to make a film that was about a group of characters that really weren't concerned with any of that stuff. They were almost living in the past in a sense, even though... It was the present day. They loved show tunes. They were romantics. They, they were dreamers. And if I was influenced by anything for this film, I suppose it was really the spirit of musical comedy and maybe the spirit of screwball comedies where all sorts of silly things happen and, uh, you know, the guy gets the girl or the guy gets the guy at the end. Broadway Damage is about beginnings. It's about that time in your life when everything is so full of promise, from your first apartment to your first love. This is my final warning. Cynics beware. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Pride. A bit of trivia, co-star Mara Hobel is probably best known for her portrayal of young Christina Crawford in the film Mommy Dearest, starring Faye Dunaway. Watch Broadway Damage Now, free on Vudu and Tubi, or rent it on Apple TV. August 26th is the birthday of iconic gay novelist Christopher Isherwood. In 2017, Steve Pride visited his surviving partner in the hilltop Santa Monica home they shared. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old child. The film Cabaret was based on the adventures of Christopher Escherwood, as chronicled in his Berlin stories. So in the sequel, I suppose we'd learn our hero left Sally Bowles and Berlin for sunny Santa Monica, where he lived until his death in 1986 with writer-artist-activist Don Bacardi. Maybe you just don't sleep with girls. Oh, you don't. Well, listen, we're practically living together. So if you only like boys, I mean, I wouldn't dream of pestering you. 
Well, do you sleep with girls or don't you? Sally, you don't ask questions like that. I do. Tell me about Christopher Isherwood. What was he like? Oh, he was the most charming man I ever met. What was uh, wonderful about him was his genuine curiosity about people. He wasn't faking it. When we met, he asked me all kinds of questions about myself. Until I met him, I'd never known anybody to take such an interest in me. And he was particularly interested in young people and young men in particular. And he wanted to know what their lives were like, what it was like to be them, what they were interested in. And you can always tell when somebody asks you questions, whether they're just making conversation, whether it's just idle curiosity, or whether it's the genuine article. And his was genuine. What was the gay side of Hollywood like in the 50s? Oh, there were clubs and bars, and of course they were very dangerous because they could be raided at any moment and often were. And um, a certain bar would emerge and be very popular and people would flock to it. But most of the bars lasted only a very short while because uh, they were soon raided. And once they got a reputation for being raided regularly, they, they couldn't last. But uh, while they did last, they were very exciting because it was dangerous and and everybody who was there knew that uh, maybe that night uh, the place would be raided and they might even be arrested. So that gave uh, the experience uh, a very decided edge. You're quoted in a book on Gay Widowers by Eric Guitarez as saying that after the death of Isherwood, you transformed yourself and underwent a complete role reversal in the relationship that followed. Yes, well, it was a very peculiar experience for me. First of all, reaching the age uh, that Chris was when I first met him. Of course, he seemed so much older and he was distinguished and from another generation, uh, another country. And suddenly, I found myself the very age he was when I met him, and that was very significant. And he was still alive then. And then after his death, I found myself gradually being put into the position of being the older one of a couple. I met a young man, fell in love with him, who who was 26 years younger than I was. And I suddenly found myself cast in Chris's role. And it was very illuminating for me because it gave me all sorts of insights into situations that I'd experienced with Chris and I suddenly for the first time began to understand how he must have felt all those years before with me and uh, so it was a continual kind of communication with him because I was understanding aspects of his experience uh, 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 really for the first time and also his example was very helpful to me because often when I had problems with my friend, I would ask myself, how would Chris behave in this situation? And you know, I always got an answer. And it was often very, very helpful to me asking Chris's uh, advice. Dark and cold was the night you came. I told you to go, but you stayed anyway. You held your finger to my trembling lips. You said, come in close, kid. I won't let you slip. Hush, little babe, hush, little babe It's your favorite song Stop all this fussing, boy There's nothing wrong Cool and swift like a bird We flew into the 
the sun into the blue that's how I know I can love I can love I can love and be spent a lot of time trying to track down Don Bacardi before he had a light bulb moment and just looked him up in the phone book. Before the pandemic, Abby Dees took a contemplative day trip to Northern California. A little while back, my partner and I spent a few days in Big Sur, the jewel of the California coast. We hoped we might slough off some accumulated stress and maybe, maybe, detached from the chatter and whirr of our daily lives. It seemed to work. With meandering creeks and ancient redwoods on one side and an impossibly huge expanse of Pacific Ocean on the other, Big Sur invited us to do nothing but sit and soak it in, first staring one way, then the other, and back again. The awesomeness, and I mean that in its original non-Kardashian sense, defied words except for, you know, awesome. There was only silence between the two of us, broken up by the occasional and feeble, God, aren't we lucky to be here? At an overlook, I even said this to a total stranger who replied, I was just thinking that, what a blessing. Sure, you can spend massive amounts of money for a cliffside room in Big Sur, but you don't need to. A car, a day off, and a willingness to accept whatever the day presents is pretty much all any Californian needs to be reminded of why everyone has heard of our state. Now, I'm a lifelong Californian, and this was only my second time in Big Sur. I'm an idiot, but that's not quite my point. Perhaps my point is, rather, that though there are few places grander on Earth, Big Sur reminded me that moments of appreciation for life's gifts are available all the time, if I'd only summon the comparatively paltry energy to seek them out. In short, it's not the view, but my willingness to see it. In the midst of our gee whiz reverie, I got an email from a friend we both love very much. He described in detail his regret about the lost opportunities of his life, and he despaired that the choices he made didn't pan out as planned. His boyhood dreams mock him now. We wondered how he would have felt if he were sitting there with us, watching the sun go down. Would it be as bad? It's not that we didn't take his sadness seriously. We did. Our hearts ached for him, and if we could have magically changed the past, we would have. But here we were, with dramatic proof that regardless of every hurt and insult, for most of us, it is possible at least to make the choice to stop, breathe, and experience beauty. It's there for the taking. Our friends still possessed the power of choice, and much more too. Security, health, freedom, and the love of some people in his life. Though much still lies ahead of him, I sensed that he could only see the past, which I do not deny was marked by injustice and pain. I know, though, that he is still a fortunate man. Really, my only wish for him is that he could feel it every once in a while as Tracy and I did that week in Big Sur, and as we vowed to stop and notice more often, even when we're not in places that practically hit you over the head with something to be grateful for. Since this essay is supposed to have an LGBT theme, 
I'll now try to share what I think any of this has to do with our community. We're nowhere near where we know we should be when it comes to civil rights. In some places in the world, we're even going backwards. Russia, Nigeria, I'm talking to you. Many of us are still isolated in unsupportive communities or shunned by the very people we love. We should be fighting any urge to rest on the laurels of our latest amazing victories, and there have been a few. Gratitude for what's good, however, is something else entirely. To everyone, every day, whoever summoned the courage to stand up for justice, even when things appeared hopeless, I truly thank you for the freedom I too often take for granted. To every parent who chose to embrace your LGBT kid, even if you didn't understand the LGBT part, I thank you for tilting the universal scales a little more towards love. No matter what lies ahead, good or bad, may we all feel loved, blessed, fortunate, lucky, whatever you want to call it, and awed by the simple beauty of life on a regular basis. This is Abby Dees. This is Abby Dees. When we're waxing poetic about going outside, it's time to take a break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The song We Shall Overcome, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Beginning in 1959, the song We Shall Overcome became a key anthem of the African-American civil rights movement. The lyrics are derived from the early gospel song I'll Overcome Someday by African-American composer Charles Albert Tindley. Its opening and closing melody is from the pre-Civil War song, No More Auction Block For Me. The song has been used in a variety of protests worldwide. In 2010, Pink Floyd's Roger Waters released a new version of it as a protest of the Israeli blockade of Gaza. In 2012, Bruce Springsteen performed the song in Oslo after terror attacks in Norway. And finally, a huge crowd of Minnesotans sang it on May 9, 2013, in the run-up to the state's House vote on marriage equality. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Talia Moser. Hello, I'm Randall Kleiser, director of Grease, Blue Lagoon, White Fang, and It's My Party, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine.
Welcome back. I'm Frances O'Brien in Los Angeles, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. If you've been online lately, you may have noticed that the amazing Craig Chester is going through some rough times. So we've dusted off a couple past interviews Craig has done on IMRU. The first was for his 2003 Sentimental Yet Irreverent collection of essays, Why the Long Face. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Hi, this is actor Craig Chester, star of Swoon, Frisk, Kiss Me Guido, and now the author of Why the Long Face. Let's talk about your book and start with your childhood. When did you know you were gay? You are gay, by the way. I am a gay. Yeah. Are you professionally gay? I'm professionally gay. I'm openly gay. When did you know you were gay? I didn't know I was gay, but I knew that I was different when I was like five. As early as I can remember, I knew that I wasn't like the other boys. I didn't have a word for it until I was 19. But before then, I just knew I was attracted to boys, you know, in high school. But when I was a kid, it was more, I was really effeminate. I was like a real sissy when I was a little boy. I was very, very effeminate and very implicated as, as gay. And now I see like little boys like me and I'm like, oh... You know, you can kind of see. And the interesting thing about the book is that as diverse as the gay community is, everyone, black, white, old, young, rich, poor, they all relate to the childhood stuff in my book. And and it's made me realize that the thing that we all have in common, as diverse as we are, is that we all had the same childhood in some way. You've been open since the beginning of your career. It is a totally different reality when you come out from the beginning. It's an economic reality, too. That's why people don't do it. I mean, I did it sort of expecting that and seeing where it was going and thinking, oh, well, eventually there will be something like a will and grace and there'll be something like a chorus folk. And I, I could see that down the road. But I wrongly assumed that, you know, me and Alexis Arquette and David Drake and other people like me would be sort of taken along for the ride, and we weren't. We all sort of sit around and bitch about that because we feel like we sort of paid our dues to the cause, and we've struggled and fought the good fight, and now that gays have sort of arrived, we're sort of left out of the process. Like uh, on Will and Grace, you know, Dan Futterman playing Will's boyfriend, and Dan's a friend of mine, and he's a really great guy. But, you know, his heterosexuality has been very much lauded in the press. And it's a crucial part of him being cast in that role. The audiences at home feel more comfortable because then they think, oh, it's all just make-believe. I auditioned for Will and Grace, but I was too gay for Will and not gay enough for Jack. Which is a common problem for me. I'm never the right kind of gay to play gays in mainstream Hollywood. I mean, I've gone into auditions for other people who are like, could you be a little bit more colorful like you can say more gay it's okay it's an adjective (laughs) you know um but yeah i'm often not the right kind of gay to play gays i've had this happen too where i've auditioned for gay parts and i was too sexual or i was too i played that aspect of the character in the audition and turned people off because i think hollywood's comfortable with gay characters and people playing gays as long as we make them laugh do their hair or decorate their homes. But like if there's anything else to do with being gay, like sexuality, I think it frightens people. It reminds me of um, whenever you ask an actor about, oh, in that movie, the, the kiss with the other man. And it's always, well, just as I was telling my girlfriend slash wife this morning, my face was raw because I suppose no one ever shaves in movies. Mm. <laughs> it was rough. You know? <laughs> it's like, come on, you know, like... 
Like, I hardly think kissing a man can be anything, you know, on par with oral sex with a woman. I mean, in terms of just the facial irritation, but <laughs> I, don't, I love comments like that. And, you know, my first movie in Swoon, the guy who played opposite me, Dan Schlackett, was straight. And when we were shooting the movie, he really had a problem with the kissing. And, you know, all the other stuff is fine, but, like, there's something about the two men kissing thing is really freaks people out. And every single movie I've done, like, from Swoon to Grief to Frisk to Kiss Me Guido, it's like straight audiences are fine with gay sex. They're actually fine with it. But the second there's intimacy or there's love between the two men, there's lots of shifting in their chairs, coughing, people walking out. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. And even lately, I, I just was in this movie that was at the Hamptons Film Festival called Bumping Heads. It's Brian Sloan movie. And there's this whole backroom sex scene and totally straight, wealthy audience in the Hamptons. And they're fine, like watching the gays have their anonymous sex in the back room. And then later on, I have this moment with the other lead in the movie who I'm in love with and I take his hand and I just hold his hand. It's just this quiet moment where I'm like in love and people got up, they walked out. And then this woman afterwards at the party, she was like, yeah, I've never really seen that before. It's like you guys were like you were intimate and that freaks people out more than gay sex because we're expected to have sex and we're expected to be promiscuous but we're not expected to love which is why the gay marriage thing is so controversial people are fine you know with the concept of gay bathhouses but like a gay marriage is so subversive and so radical and i really think that's the last territory that's the last frontier in terms of mainstream acceptance is them accepting two men loving each other that's really the most taboo thing big surprise for me in your book is the meaning of the title i was just laughing my head off and suddenly there's this heartbreaking story that reveals why the book is called why the long face yeah i grew up with a genetic disfigurement in my face called long face syndrome which is a kind of rare and um it doesn't really hit you until you're about 11 or 12 and basically what happens is the bones in your face start growing down instead of forward. So I didn't really have a chin or jaw. My teeth came in. There was no room for them to come in. I mean, it's it's like your face is just sort of warps into this deformed, long version of what it should be. And so when I was 18, I had a year's worth of surgeries to rebuild my whole face. Everything except my forehead basically has been rebuilt because I was in a lot of pain. So it was really traumatic. I mean, it was a year of my life. I had three major operations. Um, the first one was to rebuild my upper jaw. The second was to rebuild my lower jaw. And then they rebuilt the roof of my mouth. So, I mean, I told that story in the book because it's sort of a defining moment in my life. And it informs how I see the world so much because I went from having one face to having the face I have now. And when I was 19, and I saw how people treated me differently, which I expected, but I was surprised at how differently people treated me with my new face, like at the Gap or like waiters, or I mean, it was such a lesson in how important looks are, and at the same time, how unimportant they are. This has been a conversation without gay film star Craig Chester. His memoir, Why the Long Face? The Adventures of a Truly Independent Actor, is from St. Martin's Press. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Come with me to the mirror. Tell me, please, who could be fairer, could be more handsome. Very handsome.
it's real sweet But nothing in my mind could quite compete with handsome No, not handsome Standing out in the rain, kinda handsome Fall asleep on the train, kinda handsome Everybody knows your name, handsome All men are not the same Baby, you're handsome So handsome Beauty is only skin deep So I've been told Handsome goes right down Grab your soul So handsome So very, very handsome You won't admit, but I know you lie how hard and long you try to be handsome Hands down handsome Like a bad boy on a good day, kinda handsome They whisper he must be that way, kinda handsome I'll take the junior JFK, kinda handsome All men are not the same You know you're handsome Follows you everywhere you go. Can't take it off, can't leave it at home. Handsome devils, heaven for the soul. Give it up, give me handsome. the community recently to discover Craig Chester now suffers from severe osteoporosis from taking HIV medicine and has been homeless on and off for several years. A GoFundMe campaign has been started to help this community treasure get back his dignity. A link can be found on Craig Chester's or IMRU Radio's Facebook page. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
The Harvey Milk Stamp, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The Harvey Milk Forever Stamp, the first stamp to honor a leader of the LGBT community, was issued on May 22, 2014 in Washington, D.C. Milk was the first openly gay man to hold political office in California. He was assassinated along with San Francisco Mayor George Moscone on November 27, 1978. The stamp features a black and white photo of Milk against a black background, with his name spelled out in capital letters at the top. The upper left-hand corner features a vertical band of six rainbow colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. These colors represent the LGBT community's pride flag. The stamp went on sale in Richmond, Virginia on May 23, 2014 for 49 cents, which was the rate for first-class postage at the time. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Tom Miller. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Frances O'Brien, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Next, a 2005 interview with Craig Chester about the release of his film, Adam and Steve. Craig Chester surfed the early 90s wave of the new queer cinema, starring in such breakthrough indie films as Swoon, Grief, and Frisk. He's the author of Why the Long Face, The Adventures of a Truly Independent Actor. And he's the writer, director, and star of the new gay romantic comedy, Adam and Steve. Somebody needs a drink? No, 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 I'm straight. Uh, sober. Really? Wow. I'd hate to be sober. That sucks. I don't see why sober people still get to smoke. Nicotine is such a drug. Yeah, but nicotine doesn't make me wander through gay bars, pinching my nipples and moaning, pick me, pick me to hawk eyes. Adam and Steve is about these two guys who meet in 1987, when they're 21. Writer, director, actor, and author... Craig Chester. And they have this sort of disastrous one-night stand. And they meet again later, 17 years later now, but they don't recognize each other because they've sort of reinvented themselves. So the movie's sort of this suspense comedy, basically, where we're waiting for Adam and Steve to figure out that they met before in the 80s. And when they do find that out, the movie's really about how do they incorporate that into their current understanding of their relationship. That's the plot, but really that's just an excuse for a lot of over-the-top, retarded set pieces. Adam and Steve also stars Craig's best friend, Parker Posey, Saturday Night Live's Chris Catan, and Broadway's Malcolm Getz, best known for his co-starring role on the TV show Caroline in the City. I'm going to ask Adam to marry me. Oh, my God! <coughs> marry him? But you guys have only been going out for like a couple months. Actually, it's almost been a year, Michael. Besides, my parents got married on the third date, and uh, they're still together. Well, you're only as monogamous as your options. I mean, your parents live in a, a, a trailer park Excuse in a field. Excuse me? Only as monogamous as their options? You know, it gets worse, Michael. I'm going to ask him to move in. Oh, my God!
While acknowledging the film is first and foremost a romantic comedy, Craig asserts the characters of Adam and Steve are revolutionary in their own way. I think Adam is really sort of the gay everyman in a way, and I think that he's a character that we haven't really seen much of in films or in television because, you know, we're so inundated with images of perfection in a way and uh, of 25-year-olds and Speedos. And Adam is not really part of the gay community. He runs a bird-watching tour in Central Park, and he's got his dog and his best friend, and he doesn't really fit into the gay scene. Steve is much more part of that world, the sort of West Hollywood, Chelsea world. But Adam's very much like the sort of the gay underdog. And a lot of gay men watch this film and have come up to me. It's like, I think they've never seen these images before in a way. And I think the movie is very subtly revolutionary because we're showing these two 40-year-old guys, basically, who are trying to have a relationship. And it's not it's not self-consciously political, but, you know, I've been all over the country doing Q&As with the film. And when I stand on the stage, I look out into the audience and 99% of the people in the theater do not look like underwear models. Most gay men look like normal guys. And I think this film is really radical in a way because we're just showing two normal guys in a relationship. The recent spate of gay-themed films means a certain question has been asked of half the straight actors in Hollywood. I didn't want Craig Chester to feel he was left out just because he was gay, so I had to ask. Was it difficult kissing a man? <laughs> it was really hard to do the love scenes with Malcolm. I had to practice on my hand first, and I was kissing my hand, and, cause, uh, and I had to drink a six-pack before I could get to do that, because... It's just so gross, you know, two guys kissing. and I would think the razor burn, because that's what Yeah, I that wasn't used to that, you know, because usually the trannies that I make out with are pretty clean-shaven. Yeah, Malcolm and I are both openly gay actors, and we're playing two gay guys in relationship. We kind of did our research, and that's never really happened before. And it's sort of sad to me in a way that we're this far along into the gay film movement that we've never had a gay love story with two openly gay actors playing boyfriends. And... A lot of people have sort of seized on that, and I think that a lot of people like that, and a lot of people don't. I don't know. I think there's this fascination with straight men that gay men have, and especially gay men in the media have, where we all want the straight guy's approval, I think, on some psychological level. Like, we were never picked for the team, most of us, when we were growing up, and now, you know, when we have, like, straight actors playing gay, it's almost like they're picking us for their team, and I think that has a lot of power psychologically for a lot of gay men, and I've done a lot of movies where I had to do love scenes with a straight actor playing gay, and it's not fun. And since I was directing the movie, I didn't really want to have to deal with that. I wanted to have an actor who could bring his life experience to the role. It was a romantic comedy, so Malcolm and I sat around, we talked about boyfriends we've had, we put stuff into the script of moments that we'd had in real life as gay men, and and I think that the movie is very authentic that way. And the thing that people have commented on about the film and about our relationship on screen is that there's all this kissing in the movie that's not like a big deal. It's sort of the everydayness of that relationship that I think is very unique. And we haven't really seen much of that before. Just like coming in the door and being like, hey, good looking, walking over, kissing your boyfriend, going about your day. And that kind of subtle incorporation of that into these men's daily lives is what I think is sort of revolutionary about the film. According to Craig Chester, since the film's completion, there has been one big surprise. Man, it was hard to get the gay press behind us. The thing is, is that you're never a hero at home. Everyone is still way more interested in a straight actor playing gay than two out actors playing gay. 
I guess Malcolm and I thought we would be more sort of celebrated for that. And we haven't really been. I think the gay community and the gay media is way more interested in mainstream acceptance and in Hollywood approval. And, you know, and even like the GLAAD Awards, Charlize Theron and, you know, liking us and giving awards to straight people. And I think that if the gay community was more supportive of their own, I would be like, everybody come out of the closet. But it's so hard because you don't really get a lot of support from mainstream Hollywood. And also from the gay press and the gay community, you really have to beg for whatever scraps you're given. And and it didn't used to be that way. When when I started out, you know, it wasn't that way. And now it's really like everyone is so obsessed with getting the approval of mainstream Hollywood. And I really don't think that until I make a film in the Hollywood studio system that I'll actually get on the cover of The Advocate. When his first film, Swoon, was released in 1992, the list of out gay actors read Craig Chester. While he doesn't regret being out, he doesn't believe the choice is any easier in today's Hollywood. I got into theater because I was like, that's where the gays are. When I was in high school, I mean, that's where you go. And then I moved to New York and got into the business. I was like, oh, wow, like, it's actually not okay to be gay in a lot of this. But, you know, for me, it was always like, I've always been out. And my first film, Swoon, was, you know, I was 25. And the first wave of queer cinema really came out of AIDS activism. Like, all those films were fueled by that kind of rage and those politics because a lot of those filmmakers were involved in ACT UP and Queer Nation. And and I was also, as well, like I was very much a part of that sort of, I marched on Washington and I did all this stuff. And so whenever I started working in films, it it wasn't, it didn't make sense to me coming from this sort of AIDS activist background that I should suddenly, you know, start dating a girl and pretending like I'm straight. And so a lot of that generation, like, you know, we were very political and and that's really why I'm out, because it was, it was completely tied into that time and place. But, you know, it, it's I think it's actually a little bit worse now for an openly gay actor. I have young gay friends who want to be actors who just feel like it's just, you know, there's a lot more. I think back then there was some hope, you know, that maybe we could really come out, you know, and it would work. And, and then it sort of happened a little bit with Ellen, and then no one else came out. And I think it sort of feels like this moment that passed in a way. This has been a conversation with writer, director, actor, and author Craig Chester. Adam and Steve is from TLA Releasing and Funny Boy Films. More info can be found at adamandstevemovie.com, craigchester.com, and as always, prideonscreen.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If your heart always did what a normal heart should do, if you always play a part, Instead of being who you really are And you might just miss the one who's standing there So instead of passing by Show him that you care Instead of asking why Why me and why you Why not Lies we bought so long ago. 
How are they to know It's not who's wrong or right It's just another way I don't wanna fight But no, I'm gonna stay With you till the end With you, my friend Cause love don't need a reason Love don't always rhyme And love is all we have for now what we don't have is time I'll hold you close Time can't tear us apart Forever I will stand by you Oh, oh it's got to start With the beat of one heart Together we will see this through What we don't have is time Adam and Steve can be streamed on Amazon Prime Video and the 2B app. Our final story is a travel feature, a time travel feature, where we get in the IMRU Gayback machine for a glance at the roots of our movement in the streets of June 1970. Buckle your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy ride. June 28, 1970. Gay power, gay power. Thousands marched in New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles. They represented the mood of growing militancy in the United States gay community. It was actually a commemoration day as much as a civil rights demonstration because one year before, thousands of homosexuals rioted in New York's Greenwich Village section. The disorders began with a routine police raid on a homosexual bar, the Stonewall, on Christopher Street, in the heart of the West Village, commonly referred to as the Gay Ghetto of New York. By the end of the week, scores of police and rioters had been injured, many were arrested, and one man, a cab driver, was dead. Almost every homosexual who was in New York at the time of the Stonewall Rebellion has his own private memory of what took place. One of the longtime leaders of the gay rights movement, Craig Rodwell, remembers it this way. Yes, I was there every night. Uh, the first night was Friday. I was on my way home from a friend's house. Uh, the raid was just starting at that time, and we noticed the crowd, so we went over there. And a crowd was gathering out in front, and there was a paddy wagon pulled up and a few people being taken out. The crowd was very quiet at the time. I wasn't. I, got, I started yelling gay power and get the mafia out of the bars, and my lover nudged me and told me to shut up. But uh, within about 15 minutes, the crowds really started uh, doing it. 
going really far, much further beyond what I would have done or did. It started with a few coins and pebbles being thrown at the police, and then the police retreated into the stone wall, and parking meters were brought out, and chants of gay power and get the mafia out of the bars. And then after the police barricaded themselves inside, it was like half an hour later, the riot police started moving up Christopher, breaking up the crowd, which had really become a very angry crowd with hundreds of bottles and rocks. There wasn't a, one window left in the whole place after about 10 minutes. And they broke the crowd up into small groups, and this went on for like two or three hours, back and forth in the whole area. I think they thought that people would just go home or run, uh, especially since they were, were gay people. They're not used to gay people standing up at all, especially in front of police. But the people would, they would chase the people away and they would go around the block and come in another way. And this sort of tug of war went on all evening. And then on Saturday night, it was much the same thing. Starting about nine, crowds started to gather in the area, uh, sort of small groups on the sidewalk. And then around 11 or 12, they started taking over the street and stopping cars from coming through, unless there were gay people in them. Uh, a few fires were set. But generally, it was a, an angry mood, uh, a lot of chanting, a lot of hand-holding, a lot of assertion of, of being gay. And that, it was a way of saying we're tired of hiding, tired of leading two lives, tired of denying our basic identity, denying ourselves. A general assertion of gay people, newfound pride, really, a collective pride in their identity. The Stonewall Rebellion served notice on the heterosexual majority that a growing number of gays were not afraid anymore and were not content to continue living out their lives in fear and oppression. They say I'm crazy, got no sense, but I don't care. They may or may not mean offense, but I don't care. You see, I'm sort of independent. I am my own superintendent, and my star is on the ascendant. That's why I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. If I do get a mean and stony stare, if I'm not successful, it won't be distressful, because I don't care. The Stonewall Rebellion will be remembered as one of the major turning points in the homosexual struggle for equality. Dr. Franklin Kameny, president of the Washington, D.C. Mattachine Society, explains why. Whatever one may think of the merits of that particular form of expression of protest or dissent, and whatever you may think of the merits of that particular demonstration, what's mo that those are not that relevant. That what's important is the message which is being conveyed, and that, that should be made absolutely clear. And that is that we've been shoved around for 3,000 years, and we're tired of it, and we're starting to shove back. And if we don't get what's coming to us and get it promptly, there's going to be a lot more shoving back. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Frances O'Brien. 
Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, and if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email Steve Pride at stevepride.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Remember, a link to the GoFundMe campaign for Craig Chester can be found on the IMRU Radio Facebook page. Good night. My mama told me when I was young We are all born superstars She pulled my hair and put my lipstick on In a glass of old wine There's nothing wrong in loving who you are She said, cause you made you perfect, babe So hold your head up Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way This God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't have yourself in regret Just love yourself and you say I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Oh, there ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Oh, there ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Give yourself prudence and love your friends So they can rejoice the truth the religion of the insecure I must be myself, respect my youth A different lover is not a sin Believe capital H I am Hey, hey, hey I love my life, I love this record Me, I'm more I'm beautiful in my way This God makes no Yourself in regret, just love yourself and you say, I'm on the right track. Baby, I was born this way. Oh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Baby, I was born this way, yeah.